minus 20 seconds. 15 seconds. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. What has made mankind is an insatiable curiosity. Insatiable. What is that? Nobody knows. The phenomenon. Nobody's ever done this as far as I know. It's a huge amount of work, a huge amount of data and equipment. That has never been done. Whatever this is, is more complex than we could ever imagine. This is a first in the field of ufology. The variety of devices we're bringing as a team to study the phenomenon covered an entire spectrum of different technologies in real time. That moment shook me to the core because I knew my life was about to change again. I think we're going to have like a couple of really, really good spots. When I hear that you've assembled a team of top scientists using state-of-the-art equipment, I say to myself, it's about time. This is an unidentified, unclassified new phenomenon. Wow. Tic Tacs. Maybe Tic Tacs. Maybe. Caught on our cameras. Yep. That's incredible. Crazy. It isn't crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. We can go from body heat to very cold, like about minus 62 Celsius or minus 80 Fahrenheit. Wow. We will be transmitting data up to 800 terahertz in frequency. Our highest technology is up around 500 gigahertz. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to seeing what you've uncovered. We're triangulating and converging at two points, the same object. It's fading. It's gone. It's gone. It's, it's, gone. Gone. it's friggin' gone. That's up to Nova Carolina. We need you up there. We could be heading towards the biggest see I told you so in history. That's what we need, the smoking gun that'll clinch it. That once and for all will settle the debate. No ifs, ands, or buts. And in the process, rewrite all of human history. Is this the wormhole? It's insane. All right, folks, thank you for joining us today. 
As you know, this is a very special episode where the entire UAPX team has come together to, to discuss our experiences while researching the phenomenon on Catalina Island and the Catalina Channel. So let's get right to it as I bring in the team. First up is Gary Voorhees, the president and co-founder of UAPX. Gary? Hey, how's it going? Yep. Gary was uh, a witness to the now famous 2004 Nimitz Tic Tac event where he was uh, the operator of the Spy-1 radar tech in the USS Princeton, as well as having direct eyes on the object. Welcome, Gary. Uh, next up, we have Jason Turner. Jason was also on board the USS Princeton and is a founding member of UAPX and who is serving as our treasurer and handling all of our nonprofit application status. So, Jason, thank you for being here. Good to be here. Next, we have Dr. Kevin Knuth. Dr. Knuth is the vice president of UAPX and an associate professor in the Department of Physics at the University of Albany. He's also the editor-in-chief of the journal Entropy. He's a former NASA research scientist, having worked for four years at NASA Ames Research Center in Intelligent Systems Division, designing artificial intelligence algorithms for astrophysical data analysis. Did I pronounce everything correctly? I believe so, yes. Thank you for awesome. having me. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Up next is Dr. Matthew Shadagas. Dr. Shadagas is also a professor at the University of Albany, Department of Physics. He's pursuing experimental particle astrophysics, in particular, the direct laboratory detection of dark matter. Welcome, Dr. Shadagas. Hello. And finally, we have Christopher Altman. Christopher is a physicist, a quantum technologist, an international diplomat, and a NASA-trained commercial astronaut who began his scientific career with a Guinness World Record-holding artificial intelligence project and a NASA and a joint NASA-USAF-supported time travel division at a uh, multidisciplinary deep future research institute called Star Lab. It's also featured on the Discovery Channel special and in the Guinness Book of World's Records. Welcome, Christopher. Aloha. So now that we've got the entire team, this is the first time that we've really assembled ever to talk publicly about the, uh, the film, and uh, let's get to it. So folks, make sure you're not muted, and uh, Gary, if uh, as president and, and uh, co-founder of the company, let's get a couple words from you as we start off this. All right. Well, first things first, uh, I know not everybody's seen the, uh, the movie yet. Um, there will be spoilers. Sorry. We're going to be discussing the whole movie. Uh, I just want to go ahead and go on the record as to thanking uh, Caroline Corey for uh, allowing us to be able to collect the data that we have and uh, producing uh, uh, the movie. All right. With that, uh, I'll go ahead and pass it off to Jason. Yeah, it's just a, it's, a, it's an honor to be a part of this and, um, you know, to, to finally get to reconnect with some of you guys and meet, you know, all the other new guys on the on the team here that and in person. It, it, it was an honor to be able to, to, to do that. Kevin. Yeah, I'd like to I'd also like to thank Carolyn Corey for helping make this um, mission possible and. Um, it's a great opportunity, and I'd like to thank the whole UAPX team and everyone who was present for the, you know, for the event. Um, 
we were a great team. We worked excellently together and, and everyone, you know, really pulled their weight and did a, did a wonderful job all the way from, all the way from our president, Gary, all the way down to people on the production crew, um, such as Vanessa, who brought us our lunches. I mean, it was all wonderful. So thank you all. Yeah. Paco and Vanessa, uh, I got, I wish I could have them on every any, anything we've ever shot. Yeah, that's <laughs> they <right>. were awesome. <laughs> Matthew, some words from you, sir. Sure. In addition to Paco and Vanessa, uh, uh, I'd like to also add to our uh, thanks, Lenny and uh, and Michael, Michael Soto and Lenny. Yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm very happy. I'm I'm um, I'm very uh, grateful to have been able to part be part of the, not just the the science and the data taking, but I do have to say I am um, uh, grateful to, to Carolyn for allowing the possibility of meeting William Shatner. <laughs> so that, that, that as a Star Trek nerd, you know, Star Trek inspired me to be a scientist and try to turn some of that fiction in, into reality someday. So I really uh, appreciated that. Yeah, that was definitely a high point meeting Shatner. <laughs> and, uh, and finally, Christopher, I know, uh, you were you were participating with us throughout the entire thing, but uh, for some series yeah. of unfortunate events, uh, COVID, certain things yeah, didn't didn't make the uh, remote due to COVID. I uh, was able to play part remotely and continue to do so with the analysis. Absolutely. So let's get right into this. We uh, the the synopsis, I guess you could call it, is we had a five day expedition to the Catalina Island area. We had a few team members on the island. We had the rest of us that were on the mainland. We had a setup of equipment and we were funded by the production to go out and attempt to record data uh, in relations to the study of UAP. And I think that we can definitively say as one of the only things that we can definitively say is that we were successful in capturing anomalous data. Uh, as as of now, uh, we are still working on analyzing that data. I don't know that we have a lot of definitive statements to make other than we captured some things that really made our head uh, tingle a little bit. So uh, if uh, wh whomever wants to, to take the lead on this and kind of start off and, and describe the events and, and what we were doing and how we were doing it, uh, go for it. I'd like to start off um, by thanking the people who are working behind the scenes. We have, we, you know, we have quite a few people that are working that, that aren't recognized uh, publicly, but um, you know, I, they know who they are. And I'd like to personally thank them for uh, volunteering, stepping up to volunteer and, and help sift through this data. Um, sorry to cut anyone off, but I feel like, you know, I feel like they needed to be recognized for doing this. I guess the first question is a lot of people want to know how we ended up with three terabytes of data regarding UAPs. Uh, who, who wants to, to kind of break that down into what it is that, that we have, what took up the most space right. and, and what we're looking at? Well, what took up most of the space was our FLIR data because from uh, evening on the first day until the morning of the last day, we had FLIR cameras running 24 hours a day and, they took up 
the bulk of the information. And then the second thing, the UFO DAP, uh, it, with the with the hundreds of thousands of clips that it, it had taken, uh, took up a good chunk. And then um, lastly, uh, what was more important was our cosmic watch data. Uh, didn't take up a whole lot, but was most important in coordinating. Yep, there we go. <laughs> in coordinating uh, with trying to find other anomalous events in the rest of the data. So when you combine all three of those things, we ended up with, you know, terabytes of data. <laughs> so, yeah. Most and, of it is, yeah, 602 hours of FLIR. I believe it's 300 some from the UFO DAP. Cosmic Watch, I should add, thank, to thank my um, uh, friends at MIT for that since that's that wasn't you know built by by us that was wonderful device i got from my colleagues but also i wanted to say we want to make sure people understand though it's not like it's hundreds of hours of continuous like <laughs> anomalous craft or whatever right there's plenty of birds and airplanes and things like that it's not hundreds of hours of good data that's why we have to sift through it yeah. to continue to find the um, anomalies. It's it's not hundred continuous hours of UAP. Correct, correct. Uh, we we really as a team, one of the things that we do, and I think everybody will agree, is we try to debunk our own stuff. When we're looking through the the captures and the videos, we look for virtually. Well, we try to look for everything that could potentially explain this as anything other than UAP. And to be honest, there's some very convincing bugs out there. Uh, they fly in anomalous patterns that depending on how far away from the cameras they are, you know, they, they can look Those really, really walkers. mysterious. Right. <laughs> and, and luckily the way that we set up is we have all the ancillary uh, equipment. We have the cosmic watch. We have the quantum random number generator. We have, uh, you know, we had uh, eight separate FLIR cameras. We had the UFO DAP with the magnetometers and the accelerometers and and the uh, the regular CCD cameras. So we're we're able to cross reference most of our captures to to verify was it a bug on one lens or was it actually something that showed up across the board. So. I just wanted to really stress that we do everything that we can uh, to to try to explain things without jumping the shark straight to UAP. Yeah, and I want to stress that, you know, we've got several events that we're investigating at this point, and it takes a tremendous amount of time to go across other platforms like uh, radiological studies and uh, geo studies of the area and uh, try to try to locate satellite data, try to locate other data that might coordinate with the anomalies that we have. And, you know, just that alone, you know, it, it's you know, it takes months and sometimes it takes a month just to get a response back from certain research groups. So um, everybody has to be very patient with us when it comes to the, the actual results of, you know, our research. Um, we've got a small team, you know, uh, luckily here uh, when we get once we get into is it phase three of the FLIR processing, Matthew, where. Uh, uh, no, phase two, I think we're completing 1A and 1B. Well, I'm so. talking about once we get into phase three, we're going to be partnering with uh, SCU to yeah, yeah. to start sifting through what we have. Because thankfully, uh, you know, uh, Professor 
Shadagus. <laughs> I practiced it. I still, I still got hung up on it because I'm so years scared to say it wrong. How many years have you known me, Gary? <laughs> a couple now. Shadagus. Yeah. Uh, so, hey. so with with Matthew's program that he wrote, uh, hopefully we'll, we're going to hear soon. We're finalizing that program, and we're going to be able to sift through the 600 hours. Uh, with his program relatively like quickly. Yeah. And so once that's completed with the results of that program sifting through the data, we're then going to partner with the SEU to try to go through that data nitty gritty. And, uh, you know, when we do find anomalous events, then do the math to figure out figure out where it, where it is and how fast it's moving and you know any any type of information we can glean from these objects um so yeah it, sh it should it sh we should we should be able to produce some some pretty decent studies uh and, you know and there's we've got some you know we've got information that came to us that we accidentally stumbled upon that may not be uap related but is still amazing data that we're you know, we're, we're going to be writing up papers on too. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and let uh, somebody else talk. Well, for, <laughs> well first wanna... off, one of the things that I want to mention for the audience, uh, guys, I'm watching the, uh, the questions come in and uh, I'm trying to put the ones that we're going to answer in my head. But if I miss anything, uh, please forgive me. But Ross Colthart did have a, a good question and it's a perfect time for this. A lot of folks are very curious about, our peer review process and they want to know things like who's doing the peer review. And I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about how the peer review process works. Uh, and a lot of people don't even understand, uh, the, the, the process behind it, the, the secrecy behind it and the, and the blindness to it. So, uh, for Christopher, Matthew and, and Kevin, if you guys wanted to take a moment and kind of explain what the overall process is to getting a paper, uh, peer-reviewed and published. I think the the audience would love to hear that. Right. I, that, that, that's that's an excellent question. And um, we basically, this is the science branch of of UAPX, and we are performing a scientific investigation. and And this takes great deal of time and effort, as if you as you've noted. And we plan to publish our results in scientific journals, which means we're going to be writing scientific papers with whatever results we obtain. And the process works by submitting the scientific paper to the to a journal. And then it's up to the journal to, um, the editors of the journal to put the paper through a review process where it's peer reviewed by other scientists um, this can be, depending on the journal, it can go from perhaps one, one, one person peer reviews it all the way up to five um, scientists peer review it. We don't get to know who those people are. And um, you can very often suggest people who you think would be, as an author, I, you sometimes have the ability to suggest um, reviewers you think would be especially qualified and and it's up to the editors to decide whether they are going to call on those people or not uh, you also typically have the ability to um, suggest people who you think would be bad reviewers and um, and people who you would prefer not to review the paper and the editors will take that into account as well but the editors of the journal do what they want and they decide who reviews the paper and um, 
And then when, when the reviews come back, the reviewers make a recommendation to the editor. These recommendations can vary from accept the paper without revision to minor revisions where you have to make minor changes to major revisions where you have to rewrite sections of the paper, do extra analyses, all the way down to rejection where the paper is just flat out rejected. So um, we don't have any control of that and we won't know results until we get reviews back from the editor and we never get to know who the reviewers are. Um, that's a secret process. It's a blind process. Um, we, when we have a chance to make revisions, we then as authors would be able to address the reviewers comments and arguments um, and, and, and counter some of the, some of the criticisms if there are any and um or provide extra data or supportive supporting information. And, and sometimes that is perhaps will be enough to get the reviewers to then accept the paper. What, so, what are the chances of a paper actually getting rejected in its entirety? Does it ever get just completely denied or is it always a, a request for a rewrite? Oh, very, very, it's, it's not, it's not rare for papers to be just rejected outright. So I'd like to add a couple of things to Kevin's sure, points, please. if I may, to yeah, expand, please. just to expand yeah, on them. So we have to also, th there's two sides to this. The, the peer review process is, is, is really great and wonderful, but it also has, um, it also has its downsides because it's not like if we manage to get a paper through a difficult review, that does not magically confer some godlike you know, uh, that the paper is guaranteed right now. There's constant examples, I won't name any, you know, throughout the history of science, even the last few decades, papers that flew through peer review and can't be reproduced are completely nonsensical, are wrong results, and this happens in every branch of science. And so it's very important um, to be humble because we might get a paper on one of our anomalies and we get it through peer review, which will be hard because it's a very controversial topic, right? There's no, you know, high impact, ufo journal that's recognized by the scientific community they exist but i mean they're not they aren't high impact ones recognized by the community so it's controversial topics uphill battle but we always have to recognize we could go through the whole thing and then it turns out years later oh well that was a type of cloud no one's no one had discovered before you know what i mean like that you always have to be ready for the fact that science requires constant revision, something that goes through peer review and published. All it does is increase the probability it's right, but it does not guarantee 100% that it's right. So we also have to be humble. At the same time, it's going to be a very deep up. It's going to be an uphill process given how stigmatized this topic is. It's going to be extremely hard. But we can, we can, we can, we can do it because the stigma is starting to show cracks. Right over the last few years, so we're gonna. But it's good. People are gonna have to be patient because it may take months. It may even take years. I have personal experience with papers where nothing. I was claiming nothing crazy or controversial, and get rejected journal after journal. It didn't make any sense to me, and my colleagues were like, what? "But this isn't even anything controversial." And we've triple checked it, and we've done all these additional analyses. So there. There are places where it can break. One, one, another good example is lack of double blind. Not every field, not every journal does double blind. So what that means, unfortunately, 
is due to your race, gender, or if you're at a no-name school, you will get overly scrutinized. Even if the editor or referees don't mean to, it's a subconscious bias against you. And then one of the ways to fix that is double blind, where the reviewers don't even know who you are. Um, that is also imperfect, though, because anyone can just Google, you know, and find out who sure. probably the authors are of that particular topic. So it's not perfect, but there are these there are certainly these issues we have to be cognizant of. Now, Christopher, uh, Matthew was talking about not or Matthew was talking about having papers rejected that weren't even controversial. Now, you've worked on some very strange things, including a time travel project. Uh, I'm assuming that submitting papers for something like that was was a giant pain in the butt. No, actually. It was like really? Air Force um, NASA-funded project, just uh, general relativity. It was by uh, Sergei Krasnikov at Startup, and he was published in just the mainstream journals. This is, you know, it's just like the uh, a QB air drive kind of thing. There was not anything controversial about it at all. Uh, the papers I've got in quantum networks and quantum information, quantum computing, they're also uh, pretty mainstream. I mean, as far as that goes, they were they were all approved. That's fantastic. Just got back feedback to uh, to up, to update and revise a few minor details, but after that, they were approved. Well, that's fantastic. So apparently, uh, and hopefully, uh, the stigma in academia regarding UAP is is dropping to the point where we may have a good shot at getting our papers accepted. And the fact that that it looks like in some cases we may have some excellent data will also increase the chances. So even if even if the phenomena that we've observed are very strange. You know, some of our data looks very solid at this point, and um, and we, of course, we don't know what the results are yet. We don't have conclusions yet. But in those cases, it, if we do come to a conclusion, it's the the quality of the data will make a big difference in getting the paper published as well. Is there an issue with releasing the data publicly prior to submitting uh, the? Uh, the findings and the papers to a journal, uh, does that pollute the process or is, is there a, is there an ability for us to do a full data dump and then submit a paper for publication? No, we, we can't do that. And I have a very good example why from my own field. So, uh, so Kevin will also be able to add, I think, to what I say, but NASA, I believe, I believe legally has to make like all the data available instantly, which sounds like a wonderful thing. However, then what you do is you play whack-a-mole. So with all the crazies who find whatever in your data and that and to avoid that, what you do is obviously we, we, you don't hold on to data forever either. That's that's horrible. And that's not what we want. We want openness, but it needs to be a structured openness where first you write a, so, some papers without releasing it and then you release. So what happens, for example, with the Fermilat telescope um, a gamma ray telescope for NASA is that data is released right away. So then so then the Fermilat folks have to keep playing whack-a-mole with all the papers that come out right analyzing their data saying look i found dark matter you know in the center of the galaxy oh no it's a pulsar it's this or that mundane explanation you just have to keep playing whack-a-mole and that just gets really frustrating so so what you want to do is wait for put the push the whack-a-mole off until after you've done your analysis version so we, we can't just dump before we've had the, the time to the time to go through that gotcha um what is has, has there ever been data that has turned into peer review published papers that came from an expedition that was filmed publicly? 
so are we facing an uphill battle because our process was filmed and documented and is now public or, or are we okay because the film didn't necessarily show the analysis of the data? I don't know. I would say the Apollo missions were publicly aired before any of the papers were written. I wouldn't, I, I would hate to compare us to the Apollo missions. I compare anything to Apollo is really, is really risky. So sure. I don't mean to, to make a, any reasonable kind of comparison there, but, but as an example, as an example, so yes, it does happen and um, it can happen. We, we, I think we were, you know, we tried to be careful in the film to not jump to conclusions. We did describe what we believe we saw, which is different than, and I would hope that the scientists watching the show would understand, the movie would understand that that's different than making a scientific um, conclusion. Yeah. And, and that is a great segue in, into this next part. We, we are all human. We all make mistakes. We say the wrong things. We type the wrong things. We put decimals where they're not supposed to be, but it takes an entire team to get everything back on track. And I know that there are some factual clarifications that we do want to make regarding the film. Um, and just as a disclaimer, nothing that we're saying here today is meant to disparage the film. It is, it is not aimed at that. It is not to be taken as an attack on anybody. It is simply the fact that our team does have tenured professors who are affected by data that may or may not be accurate. So one of the things that we want to do today is simply correct the record where the record needs to be corrected. Um, that said, uh, I want to bring up a, a, a quick 35-second clip. It was one of the opening scenes of the movie uh, just to kind of set the tone of, of things that needed correcting and things that we saw that were, that were wrong. So let's, let's take a look at this really quickly. When I hear that you've assembled a team of top scientists using state-of-the-art equipment to settle some of these questions, I say to myself, what took you so long? I mean, the data is out there, so we have to jump into it wherever it goes. So who noticed the biggest error on that one? I mean, it, it flashes very quickly, but... Uh, the word satellite in the, uh, the Chiron down at the bottom of the screen was spelled wrong. Um, and that's, that just goes to show that nobody's perfect. We can, we can expect to have issues and, and things happen that, uh, you know, that passed through multiple different hands and, uh, it wasn't caught until, uh, the, the screener came out. So, and I, I believe Kevin, you, you had some comments that you wanted to make on, uh, Michio Kaku's yeah, well, statements there as well. Uh, that and that, and I also wanted to mention with having to do with mistakes. Um, you know, we made, we made several mistakes during our data collection and, um, and where we've learned from those mistakes, that's important. And the, the great physicist, John Archibald Wheeler, used to say we learn we learn from our mistakes 
So the job of a physicist is to make mistakes as fast as possible. <laughs> and, I, and I like that. That's very, a very good way to think. Um, so, you know, we've, we learned from some of the mistakes we made in, you know, in our data collection. For instance, I don't think we had an operational magnetometer during the whole time. The, the, OSI, the, the UFO DAP, I believe, had one, and I think you mentioned it in the film, but I don't think we collected data from that. And I never got my magnetic radiometer put together in time for the mission either. So that's, that was one mistake. And, and, yeah, and, I, I made a huge mistake uh, with the uh, the magnetometer that's inside the OSIRIS, especially when Jason and I went uh, about five miles, five to ten miles north of the, uh, the location to triangulate that object that uh, Michael and David saw on the island. Uh, I completely spaced and forgot to turn on the magnetometer. So while we recorded video, we we missed we missed the data from that. So mm -hmm. yeah, in, the, in the heat of the moment, it was just a, an oversight, you know, and it happens. It's human human error. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, 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 we'll, and we'll learn from that, and we'll do better next time. We'll also learn yeah, about the time the time synchronization. We do need a tighter time synchronization for measuring whether something's quote unquote simultaneous or not that's another another Absolutely. thing yeah so now that we're on the topic uh, i want to open this up to to everyone what was your biggest frustration with the process of filming as it relates to science not as not as it relates to uh, uh anything that was was personal or, or things like that but as it related to doing our job while we were on site what was your biggest frustration? G Gary, I'll, I'll let you go first on that one. Um, well, I think, I think my, my biggest pet peeve was I was uh, kind of hoping it would be more fly on the wall film cin cinematography. Um, that was a bit frustrating at times. I'm, uh, I'm, I kind of just wanted to do our thing and that's it. But, you know, as it were, you know, but that's that. That's about it. Uh, I mean, we all have our our day to day frustrations, and you know, keeping everybody's spirits up, keeping everything going. I know I was only sleeping like one hour a night at the time, you know. So <laughs> I'm sure it's pretty cranky by the end of the five days. Um. Uh, yep, it's me. Uh, Space Oddities is also me. Uh, I ran a billion dollar weapon system and the Spy One Bravo system. And uh, I was a, I worked in uh, satellite communications before I was the president of this company. <laughs> so, Jason, as as far as your perspective on the on the process of filming, uh, you know, we went there to collect data. Uh, obviously, we're all grateful for the opportunity that we were given. the The production gave us. Uh, the ability to get there paid for our expenses and, and we wouldn't have the data today that we do had it not been for the production. But what was one of the things that you found to be frustrating that, you know, if you could go back in time and change something that you would, you would make that change? Uh, I, I would, I would say not being able to capture things in, in real time. Um, there were a few things that we did capture in real time, but you know, um, I, I wouldn't say it was so much, an interference as as much as a disruption to what we were actually trying to do in the moment um but that said i mean we 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 go back and just basically what you know 
what it was that we were doing in the moment is what we had to do again just to capture it on camera so beyond that i mean like when we were out when you were when you and i were out in the osiris um it was just a as things were happening right and um you know the the, the guys that were the the one guy that was doing the camera and the other guys doing the sound man it was like it was smooth but i but i realized you know that there there is the the production factor of it sure uh, sure you know beyond that i mean you you, you really the 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 production team themselves man they they were they were excellent in in capturing these things as it was happening but you know it was just it was just the um the hassle of having to move equipment around and and things like that i think that just you know to, to get a a shot if, if you know anything about videography you you've got to have good lighting for your shots and, yeah and, you know having to move stuff around and it was kind of a distraction even for even for me the non-scientific kind of person it was a distraction for me but it was okay matthew what about yourself what uh what did you find disturbing or 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 interfering with the uh, the scientific process what would you have changed given the ability to change it um just uh, more time to just do some sky watching basically just uh, uninterrupted but i understand how that's uh but that's not that wouldn't make a very entertaining film of course so we needed we need you can't uh be just constantly manning the equipment but it would have been yeah that's uh checking on on the on the the power um circuit mm. breakers a little more often that's all but 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 really um it was it was a, a definitely a a unique experience i think we just lost uh kevin though yeah his his connection dropped i'll uh, okay. i'll add him back as he comes back in um christopher i know that uh you were you were behind the scenes uh, a lot, and your mic is muted. I can't unmute you, but uh, when you start talking, unmute your mic. You were behind the scenes a lot, and I know that there was uh, there were some scenes that you were supposed to be in. Um, but from an outside perspective, and what you saw happening, and what you saw, uh, or what you know of the, uh, the the reason for us being on Catalina, what would you have been able to change if 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 you could have? Fly on the wall style documentary. So no interruptions, no interjections, no outside influences. Yeah. Yeah. And just to uh, to let the audience know, we had, and I'm not disparaging the production, I'm not disparaging the crew in any way, shape, or form. They had a job to do, and that was to make a documentary and to film us. We also had a job to do, and that was to collect data. And quite often, the two forces would come together at impossible crossroads. And just as a small, uh, small example of some of the things that we did, I want to show you guys this right here, uh, just for just a few seconds. So what you saw there is the production crew setting up one of the movie cameras directly in front of one of our FLIR systems. And that went on, I think that video by itself is like eight minutes and 12 seconds long that the camera was blocking our FLIR. So 
we lost a lot of potential usable data uh, and the proximity of the cameras with their EMF output could have affected the quantum random number generator. It could have caused static on the FLIR cameras. It could have done a lot of things. So there's a lot of things that we lost during the filming of this production, but it's not at the fault of the production. They have to get their shots. They have to, you know, make things look good. Uh, they funded us. So we had to make a lot of, uh, uh, acquiescing to, to what they, they required. But, uh, we were up against, uh, a lot of a lot of issues during the filming of that we had we had some power failures and at least during... uh, at least the weather cooperated <laughs> not always <laughs> for for the most well i mean our equipment uh, didn't get cloudy. rained on but, were cloudy uh, days, though. but i, I yeah, tell you was... what though you you couldn't have asked for a better location than the location that caroline lo got for us i mean this place was gorgeous i mean yeah you couldn't even imagine how how gorgeous this house was the location was it was perfect sitting right on the side of a mountain you know i mean i mean honestly you'd, you'd get a little uh it's a little hairy driving up and down the driveway because of how steep this thing was <laughs> and uh you know but there's so there, there's so many things that we were grateful for with this and i mean things could have been better things could have been worse no matter what we still got some good raw data we've got some you know i know we've got we've got several anomalies that are are absolutely crazy interesting that we're we're going through oh, uh don't forget caroline and michael's expert handling of the police and the code enforcement right the, yeah that oh, is in the, movie, gosh, the neighbors yeah. yeah the neighbors thought that fleer can see through walls which it can't especially <laughs> now if it's pointed up but it doesn't intrinsically anyway yeah you gotta, you gotta imagine this though here we go we got yeah. all, these, all this equipment set up on this roof and you got these neighbors and you know this is not this is not like the hood this is like a really really expensive neighborhood so they were like hey, they called the police on us so many times but and then at one point i think we had just about every pd up there at least for 10 minutes to go on the roof to take a look at everything but they were all in awe of uh how, what everything everything that was going on yeah to be fair though those were multi multi-million dollar homes and people had moved there with the expectation of seclusion and privacy and all of a sudden there's a full production crew and some some of the strangest scientific equipment mounted on the roof of this house and god knows what they were thinking they they had i been them i probably would have been thinking they could see through my walls too so but uh there's there was a lot of things that would have been better had we known what we were up against during the filming. Uh, and again, not disparaging the crew, but it was the style of the production that sometimes got in the way. And one of the things that I wanted to show here is there's another clip. Um, this is where Caroline is talking about triangulation. I want to show this really quickly. When a team member spots an anomalous object, the protocol is to immediately contact the rest of the team to see if they are able to capture the same object from different angles. And they also have to record what they capture and send the recording to our scientists. Now, she's absolutely 100% correct. That's exactly what our protocol is. Um, unfortunately, 
when we set up our equipment on the roof and we wrote down the azimuths of the cameras, the positions, we had the GPS coordinates of everything. Um, and then we would go up to the roof a few hours later, our equipment sometimes was moved and we lost the ability to properly triangulate a lot of the times. And I know Kevin, I believe you had to sit down and do some serious trigonometry a couple times to compensate for that, uh, is can can you elaborate a little bit on on what you had to overcome to be able to get some azimuths and headings? Yeah, I mean the difficulty. One of the difficulties was that we weren't we weren't pre pre we as a team weren't prepared for the rigors of performing the scientific investigation while the production was going on. And we, of course, we were unfamiliar with how production works and how this style of production was going to work. So we weren't we weren't well prepared for that. And as a result, that we did not have um, good measurements between the different cameras. We didn't always know which camera was looking where, and we had to go through a lot of work later to piece that back together again. And and as you pointed out, sometimes cameras were moved. And um, which would which would have messed up any measurements we would have had if we had actually been able to do that. So, so that's 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 another lesson that we've learned. And um, fortunately, because we were looking out at Catalina Island and we had some idea of what we were looking at, you're able to reconstruct the um, the pose of the cameras at least, so you knew where the cameras were looking and. Um, and that gives you azimuth and altitude. And, and from there, we've so far been able to reconstruct the information that we've needed. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that as a team, we really learned a lot. Uh, not only did we learn how to properly plan and, uh, and make procedures that would allow us to mitigate a lot of these things in the future, should we ever do another documentary, but even the mistakes that we made during this filming will help us in an expedition without a documentary, because it shows us, you know, even the wind could blow a camera off position. So yeah. now we, we better understand how to properly compensate and, you know, everything down from making every 15 minute periodic checks and re-verifying the headings and the azimuths of the cameras and, and the systems and having battery backup systems. Um, Matthew, I know that there's a lot of talk uh, in the movie. There was a conversation about the battery drain that, uh, that occurred. And I think at that time, it was, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I, I believe in the film, it was discussed as, as a weird occurrence. Uh, and there's a lot of uptick on, on Twitter and Reddit and things talking about a paranormal battery drain that we encountered. But I believe that uh, during your post-analysis investigation, or post-investigation analysis, uh, you made a determination on what actually caused that. You want to take a moment and, and speak about that? Uh, sure. We only learned this very recently. So this was way too late um, uh, to, to fix in the movie. Because again, remember, science and entertainment have different goals. You can't, you know, you can't change a movie when it's fully done already, fully produced, you know, no more past the final editing deadlines. But in science, we're always learning more. So I speak, I speak myself very animatedly during the movie about how it's so bizarre that we didn't have FLIR data from one of our most exciting anomalies but and and we thought originally 
you know, it, that it, it, it could be tied together. And this is a great example, though, where, where um, your own uh, one's own bias can creep in. And and I'm, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I was like, oh, you know, I see this in the movie. Oh, it's like what always happens, you know, with the phenomenon that causes, you know, battery drains and things like that. And so I originally thought, we originally thought it was like that the cameras failed moments before or minutes before our strange, our, our strange event. But fortunately due to the, you remember what a painstaking process this was, Jeremy renaming all, all the FLIR files and then, and, and fixing it so that you could find the exact day and time an exact camera number and name of every single file. That was a difficult process because it's just, and, and we still haven't done that with the UFO DAP. It's, we have to categorizing things is not trivial, right? And the default file naming system is, isn't always the, the best. So it took a long time, but once we fixed all the FLIR names and could just search the data, that's when I went back and realized, oh, with none of the cameras working since like 10 p.m. So we thought it was an anomaly where the power failed on the camera mysteriously at 4 a.m. with no explanation when it was probably just one of our standard power failures of overloaded circuit breakers because of the filming equipment. And so there was one flare camera that kept going. That's why we thought it was weird because one flare camera stopped minutes before the anomaly. But when you look at the record, you see, oh, well, that was the FLIR camera that had a battery backup. And the battery was not mysteriously drained. It just died after many hours of working really hard after the power failures around 10, I believe it was 10.45 p.m. So I just think nobody noticed that the power had failed probably due to a mundane explanation. So that's a great example of something that seemed very um, anomalous, although even if it turned out to have been weird or in some way shape or form correlated i would never ever call it um paranormal because right. what if it's just some electrical draining phenomenon or something that is scientifically explicable but that we just haven't gotten to yet so i would never have called it um i didn't no matter what i never would have called it um uh paranormal though um, yeah. but it turns out to be it turned out to be pretty mundane and and it's too late obviously to fix i speak very animatedly about it during the movie but we found out that it was just you know sure. ordinary power failure yeah and and that that is a cautionary tale for yeah. us making definitive statements. Uh, one of the things that we have tried very, very uh, adamantly as a team is never to come out and say something is or something isn't. Um, and I know that in the heat of doing a, 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 a film segment, uh, people say things that they shouldn't have said or, or make statements that uh, get not cut and you know they don't fall on the editing room floor and they get put into the movie so i wanted to take a second and uh, and show this clip really quickly and kind of talk about kind of talk about this and it's not laying blame it's just we are under a lot of pressure when there's movie cameras that are facing us so let's take a look at this one really quick Time. Uh, we have an anomalous object, and this thing is like an elongated, I don't know what to call it, because it's not an aircraft, it's not a bird, it's not a bug, it doesn't fit all of the prosaic objects that we are aware of. So, 
while David is is probably accurate in his statement, I, I think that given the opportunity and if the cameras were away, he probably would have chosen different words. And I don't believe, and uh, I don't want to speak for the team, but I want to give everybody an opportunity to kind of give a yay or a nay to this. But given the opportunity for us to describe that, I think we would have chosen different terminology and maybe not been of, as definitive as to what it isn't without uh, a rigorous analysis to it. Uh, Gary, any comments on that one? Um, sorry, I was answering a question in the chat. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> no, no worries. I'll, I'll, I'll punt this to, uh, to either Matthew or, or Kevin or, or Chris who want no, I whichever think, want to take it. You know, I, you're right, Jeremy. I do trust though. And I, I did, and I still uh, do tr uh, trust David Mason's expertise with, with the FLIR. So I think the important thing is it is when you, when you do make definitive statements, we, we, we can, and I've made them in the movie myself. The important thing is to, if new facts come to light, to go back and change your mind and say, well, you know what, that, that was wrong. The important thing is a scientist or an engineer is not that you're not that you're perfect, but that if new data comes to light, you uh, admit that you're wrong. Now, I think the, uh, in the, the clip in question that is still, ano still anomalous and is probably not airplane or, or, or bird, etc. And I think that the thing is, again, science and entertainment are, are different. I think what we see there is, is, is David summarizing a lot of stuff that had gone on behind the scenes, yes. but that you can't put into a movie because it gets too long. And it's not for a scientific audience, for a general audience. So I know that on the, on the side, me, David, Kevin had a lot of times like that, where the scene in the movie doesn't give the full explanation of why we think that thing is anomalous and it's not this that that being said you're right that sometimes we do shoot from the hip i did that um myself during the movie saying that like oh the battery failure it was a, a weird you know thing that happened and i fell into that that myself but the important thing is is to go back and fix that to the best of my knowledge though that in that in that exact in that clip i think that we still um don't know what that is and that is still a a, a valid uh, uh, anomaly that has not yet been identified. That doesn't mean it won't eventually be identified, but I don't think it, I think David's point is are correct about, you know, the shape and the behavior don't match, um, don't match that of, uh, an airplane or other, uh, uh, prosaic objects on a FLIR. Sure. Sure. I just wanted to let the audience know that we are extremely cognizant and very cautious about making claims without the full analysis of the data. And again, each one of us is human. We all say things that that we feel at the time. Uh, we may be personally convinced that something is or isn't something. And, and we may be basing that on, like Matthew said, data that didn't come across in the film. But when the viewer watches something like that, it comes across potentially as a definitive statement without the data to back the statement up. So I wanted to give people an idea of what we have to go through to get to those definitive conclusions. Yeah, I think, I think another another thing to emphasize is the fact that the documentary, our press releases, and things like this are not professional scientific statements, and they're not equivalent to a scientific paper 
or a presentation at a scientific meeting. That's those are very different things and very operating at very different levels, and they operate at different timescales. And 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 like Matthew said, there's in the scientific process, there's a lot of correction, self-correction that's per- performed um, as you go over your results again and again and again and again, and um, and that's an important part of the scientific process, and and it takes time to do that. Yeah, and and not only is the statements in the, in the film uh, vastly different than what the paper is going to be, like uh, Dr. Knuth stated, but so is our social media. We, you know, we're all individuals. We all have opinions. Uh, and when we speak as an individual, we're not speaking on behalf of UAPX. And there's a lot of things that each one of us says, uh, those of us who have social media, that people tend to misconstrue as a definitive statement when it is not uh, the only yeah, definitive statement. we're assholes. Well, well this is exactly why I, I don't have Twitter and I, you know, right. and I, I, this is exactly why I can work 300% time and be as productive as I am. Cause I don't have Twitter. Don't wait. I don't waste time with vacuous arguments, but just focus on the real work. I barely yeah. stay get on Facebook. But one thing I need to point out about definitive statements, I said this during an SCU, uh, uh, YouTube, uh, uh, thing in a few weeks ago, uh, science is not math. Okay, very rarely do you make a definitive statement. So I'll give you extreme examples of this. To, we, we, you could say, well, Einstein's theory of general relativity, it's done. It's definitive. It's proven, right? Gravity is geometry, this, that. Wrong, because we don't have a quantum theory of gravity. So it's incomplete. So science very rarely makes definitive statements. And even math doesn't because, you know, we've got famous Goodell's incompleteness theorem. So we can even poke holes in math. So you have, we have to be careful. There's a difference between evidence and proof. Very rarely are you actually able to prove something, especially not a negative. And so even so-called definitive statements may have to be um, uh, walked back later. And it's important to have the uh, humility to be able to do so. Yeah, there's actually a time on set when uh, <laughs> I had to bite a little bit of humble pie because I actually scared the hell out of myself. Uh, at one point, we kept seeing these shadows in the clouds. and <laughs> I remember this. Yeah, the giant triangle. I'm out there with my cell phone on night mode trying to take a good picture of this yeah, shadowy cloud. This it was ominous just sky thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it straight up looked like a mothership over the roof. And I'm thinking to myself <laughs> for like hours, I'm like, you know, I'm looking at it from different angles from on the property, and I'm like, son of a bitch, that thing's just not going away. What the hell is it? You know, and I kept looking up. I'm like, it's nothing. There's just some type of weird lighting and stuff like that going on. And then after the production leaves, all the lights are off. And I go out to the balcony, and I'm, I'm just looking out at this beautiful view. And I look up, and I almost, I almost shit myself. It's still there. And I'm like, all the lights are off. What the what the you know and so i'm freaking out i'm like i i go wake up everybody that's actually staying at the house i'm like come out here and look at this the thing's still there and come to find out underneath where i couldn't see the deck there were lights that were shooting up and it was actually the shape of the house in the clouds i mean i literally convinced myself there was a damn mothership i i I looked at jeremy i'm like if that's a mothership i'm out dude i'm done i'm done you're the boss i'm gone i'm done i remember and that was that was right after uh the gunshots oh yeah we were no, on that was a car backfiring yeah, it was just a car yeah. <laughs> well dude it we sounds like gunshots i'm sorry i'm prior no, military well, your I hear, PTSD, I hear. it was your ptsd kicking it i'm sure it was a yeah. car yeah, i still have a 
I still have a scar on my knee from falling on the roof. <laughs> I still have my pants. Pain, pain. pain. <laughs> Better to fall than get shot. I'm sorry. I don't care if it was a backfire. So, for yeah. for the audience not knowing what happened, everybody was up on the roof. It was nighttime, and uh, uh, Jason and I were actually in the Osiris driving back from uh, one of the triangulation points. And as we were driving back, there was this little uh, Japanese souped-up uh, car uh, with high compression ratio. And as it zoomed past us, it sounded like automatic gunfire. Well, we could see the car and we knew what was what was happening but gary and the rest of the team were up on the roof of the house and all gary hears is bang 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 bang, bang, bang. and he is yelling at everybody to hit the deck because the military training kicked in so dr knuth and shadagas and everybody they're they're laying on the ground of this roof covering their heads thinking they're, they're getting shot at <laughs> Well, I so. thought. I mean, I when 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 Gary said hit the deck, I thought, my God, now the neighbors are shooting at us. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It was the it was the L.A. area, right? So, yeah, right, yeah. Know. But you know, Jeremy, I just realized when Gary brought up the light in the sky, we're an hour in, and we haven't even mentioned the number one most interesting event that we had a press release about the hole in the sky. Well, we haven't even gone there. Uh, we're we're going to discuss that, but I think there's two very very hard errors that uh, that we need to correct um and uh one matthew I, if, if you want to discuss it was the meteor uh if you wanted to take a moment to discuss that i have a clip of that or we can skip it it's that is completely up to you no i think since we're an hour in we should move things along yeah no it's just again entertainment and and, and science requires precision but that's not an entertaining you know entertainment and science are different are different goals and you know and carolyn did her best and the editing crew now there is there is a moment where um i'm looking at a um an airplane in the FLIR. i'm calling it a meteor but that's because i was looking at a different video than was shown in the movie but those things happen you know in in editing and i'm not um um i'm not uh angry or, or upset at all just wanted people to know that i knew i know it's an airplane not a meteor but again that's because the the, the, the movie is not for it's not for an audience of, of people like me or, or Kevin or, or, or Chris Altman. It is meant to be entertaining. It and meant it to be for that audiences purpose. like me. Yeah, no, it, serves, <laughs> it serves that purpose. And so there, there, there is there, there is nothing wrong with uh, with editing a movie to, to make it entertaining. Um, but yeah, I definitely, there's a moment where I call something um, a meteor that's an airplane, but that's because in real life I was looking at a different different video. Yeah, and uh, I won't play the clip, but there is a, an interview quote from me where I'm talking about the X-47B, and uh, the film has me saying that it is a Mach 9 aircraft, which it was it was a mistake on my part. I asked for a reshoot. It was reshot, but for some reason they used the wrong one. The X-47B is a Mach 0.9 aircraft at altitude. Uh, so that uh, that came across in the movie as as the wrong quote. But again, mistakes are made and, and we own them. So but the was, reason. A, yeah, go ahead. There was one other. It was one mistake in a recreation of what I had seen. It was when um, when I was sitting on the roof with the night vision goggles, I was seeing flashes of light on the surface of the water. And in the recreation of the movie, it actually shows it above the water, These fla like a flashing object. It wasn't one flashing object. There were separate flashes of light happening in different locations on the water. And it looks, in, at, at this point, 
um, from what we then later saw in the flare video of these objects dropping into the water. It looked very much like the flashes that these objects dropping into the water made when they hit the water's surface. And I was seeing that in infrared, but, but um, I don't remember who was sitting next to me, but they, that person was not, did not have the night vision goggles on and couldn't see anything. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't so, see shit. That was the one that so was So it's very possible that, that I was, so I, we haven't checked yet. We haven't gone back and checked the times and all of this to look at the FLIR videos, but it's very possible that I was watching, seeing infrared light from these objects hitting the water. Um, but that, that's not at all what it looks like in the recreation in the video. Yeah. Well, Matthew has a point. We're an hour in and we haven't talked about the biggest part of this movie. So let me pull up this quick 30 second clip to set the stage. Right. At 3.59 a.m., this is what the uh, UFO DAP recorded. There's a hole in the clouds, which is not abnormal to have a hole in the clouds that closes. But notice those strange dots within mm. it. And also, if you go frame by frame, it closes in a fraction of a second. That seems to be too fast for natural cloud formations. For clouds to move in and close the hole, they would have had to be going something like 700 miles an hour. So that happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, that is, I think, the reason that everyone is here today. Um, and I want to start off with the very first question that we get uh, from our Discord channel is how do we know that's not a camera glitch? Well, there are many reasons and I, and Kevin and Chris as will fill in what I don't say. So it's a $5,000 brand new camera. It's funny how camera glitches always kick in when it's UFO time, right? Oh, it's just a camera glitch. And, but no, but, but that's not obviously a good enough answer. That's like an argument by authority. Oh, it's a brand new good camera. By itself, that is not a good enough answer. But the next, the next thing is, is that's only part of it, right? We have a videos before and after we can see something that looks like, I mean, it, it's too bright, but maybe it, it could be a bug flying by or something that triggers the camera and it rotates and the, and, and that hole acts like it's, it's really there, a hole in the yeah. clouds and not a camera glitch. Because if it was a camera glitch, it would always be like, if it was dead pixels, it would stay in the same spot. But why isn't it there hours before, days before, hours after, days after? So um, it's, so it's, it, it, could it still be a camera glitch? Sure. But that's, that's that it's kind of ridiculous when you consider the, the facts that I just, the, the, that I just stated. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's always possible, but I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just, it's improbable. There's a difference between improbable though and, and, and impossible, of course. Sure. Kevin. Yeah. I mean, you have, you have a, you have some images about a short video two minutes before where you have that, dark hole in the clouds without the white spots in it. And then two minutes later, we have another short video, half a second long, 12 frames, where you have those white spots in the hole. And, and during that, those in the one of those frames, I think going what from frame eight to nine, you see mm -hmm. an additional white spot appears. Um, we don't know what the white spots are. We have no idea. Um, we, the whole, to me at this point, my best hypothesis would be that it is what you would call a false streak hole where you have, um, some kind of condensation happened in the cloud. So you basically, you, you pulled material out of that cloud, leaving a hole. Um, they, 
sometimes happen when you have callouts at very high altitudes and you have um, freezing occur. Um, this isn't the case here. These clouds were low. They were about um, 1,700 feet altitude, and it was rather warm. So um, instead, what we think, what I think happened is that whatever those white dots are, or whatever there were, there were we did get um, weather radar that confirmed that there were some high speed winds up in that general vicinity. And so those winds could have been responsible for a fall streak hole forming. And, and in the video, I mentioned clouds closing up the hole. I mean, that's clearly not what happens in the video. If you actually watch, and I, and I made a correlation map of this across the sky, um, which maybe you, you're able to show. I do. Um, let me, uh, let me bring up which, uh, you want the false color correlation map? False color co correlation map, yeah. Okay, there we go. So what right I there. did there is I took the 12 frames of video, I took a few of the pixels in the middle of the hole, and then I did a correlation of every pixel with the changing light amplitude or illumination of that hole over over those 12 frames so you can see what's all so you can see what pixels are behaving like the center of that hole and so this really highlights what the hole looks like um, the hole is clearly a real thing it's changing over time so if it's a camera glitch it's changing over time which is strange but it's very localized and you can see that there is some change happening on the rest of the clouds and what i think is happening is you had a fall streak hole um, we don't know what caused it. And um, you then have recondensation of the fog. It was rather foggy. And so you have recondensation of the fog that's happening across the whole sky, but it happened mostly where that hole was because you had um, gotten rid of a lot of material there. So what's that's the probability what of the recondensation of a cloud occurring when the ambient temperature is roughly at, you know, 4,300 feet, it's roughly 80, 82 degrees? Well, you have fog already up at that altitude anyway. So, it, you know, you've got cloud formation occurring there already. So because the cloud is present, so I don't see that as being improbable. But not forming ice crystals. But it's well, not forming ice crystals. No. It's not cold yeah. enough. Right. Not yeah. cold enough. Right. Yeah, it's not, they're not ice crystals. And then those white objects, we don't know what those objects are. There were, you know, it would be easy to claim, oh, they're seagulls, but... Um, then you have to ask, what's the probability that you have a flock of seagulls? Um, I count 53 objects there when I look at it. Um, I've got some machine learning algorithms that have been running on this for several months that can count up to, you know, they're getting something like 48 objects. So you could ask, what's the probability that you get one of these white dots happening only where the hole is, not happening anywhere else? So you can calculate that probability. Um, that's rather low. You just, and it's easy to calculate. You just compare the ratio of the area of the hole, count the number of pixels in the hole compared to the number of pixels in the sky. So that's a low probability already. But then when you count that there were, if you lowball it a little bit, say there's only 40 objects in the hole, what's the probability that all 40 are going to line up perfectly with that hole by random, by chance, it turns out it's 10 to the minus 86, which is extremely small. There's no chance that they're random. Those white dots are somehow associated with the hole. And so we we are rather confident about that at this point. But we don't know what they are. And we're still working on and, that. 
and Matthew, I believe that we got some uh, some correlative radiological data at the same time. And as you're famous for saying, seagulls are not radioactive. That's right. So now, again, it could be coincidence, but it's a lot of coincidences. Is um, you know, this is in the movie, right? And we talk about it in our our last uh, press release. Is that I made a table of the most interesting radiological events and you hit pay dirt on the very first one because that's how you found this video that made into the movie jeremy you found you found it after i made the spreadsheet in yeah. order and you hit oh the highest energy event we record happened to be this now it's very important um that our listeners understand we're constantly bombarded by naturally occurring high energy radiation so by itself uh, 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 a high energy hit of, of radiation in our radiation detector cosmic watch is not anomalous because it happens all the time. What made this bizarre was that this, that was the number one most energetic event we saw that week. And it correlated within, again, as I mentioned earlier, we didn't have outstanding time for time synchronization, but within a minute of this strange, strange video and not just that, but then one of the next, not the highest, but none of one of the next highest, most energetic hits we got in the cosmic watch was only a minute before. <laughs> it was one a minute before and a minute after this video, and our and our time synchronization error is plus minus a, a minute. I would have loved to have you know second, subsecond even of course certainly, but within our time synchronization error, they appear to have been all um, all pretty much uh, concurrent, and so that's what makes it strange. Not. They um not those radiological events by themselves because it could be you know a distant black hole billions of light years away that just happened to spew something that interacted in the upper atmosphere and then created something that hit our detector on the ground. So by itself, it's not that anomalous. It's still something like I believe one in a hundred thousand <clears> chance. You know, we should have seen only like a, one event like that the whole week. And instead, we saw a couple of them. And a couple of them that were correlated in time to this strange video. And so and together with the Doppler radar that Kevin mentioned, that that one can one can poke holes in these pieces. But when you look at the, the grand scheme, that's a lot of coincidence when you put it all together. That's what makes this event so interesting. Yeah. And the Doppler radar didn't just record turbulence in that area, did it, Kevin? It uh, it actually had some reflective recorded reflective objects in the in the general area. It's not at the exact same area. It's in the general area. So but it, but but to be fair, the reflection of the radar for weather has a, a very low resolution. So refining that could have put it back right on target, potentially. And also, it's still, I, I, it still may be correlated. It's difficult yeah. to say at this I point. Make sure follow up we're going to do. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Gary. Sorry. I do want to make sure that everybody understands that this is still under investigation by us. Yeah. You know, I mean, tomorrow we could find out this. This is just a freaking weather anomaly that is already known, and we just got the right expert that happened to know exactly what it is. So, <clears throat> understand, we are still reaching out to other organizations, scientists, and uh, looking at at mundane things that this thing could have been but so yeah. far we haven't found anything any any round round pegs that fit the round hole yet and in in the process of looking for correlative data from outside sources i know we've gone to a lot of other outside agencies to request information uh through foia pretty much the everything that we've requested from the government has been denied uh matthew are you comfortable talking about uh, some of the other agencies especially ones that were offline at the time of the, the requests? Um, sure. Well, this this could lead us into the 
question of what we call it, right? Because sure. we, I, yeah, I did reach out to, um, I was hesitant, of course, because of the stigma of this topic, but I did reach out to colleagues on, on, on LIGO, which discovered gravitational waves, has made numerous measurements just to see if they had recorded something anomalous. But uh, during that week, they ha they were undergoing uh, maintenance. I think they were on, but in a high noise mode where you can't really see anything. So, yeah, I hope they don't kill me for <laughs> saying this during the YouTube. Yeah, but but because But that's the thing is we want to – it's very important to check ourselves and look. The more correlations we find of of different types of anomalies, the the more sure we are that something is anomalous, rather than having a more uh, prosaic explanation. So, yeah. but we did hit a dead we did hit a, a dead end there. We also tried to to look at correlations with <clears throat> solar activity to explain radiation. And as you know, Jeremy, we did during the week. There was. A, a coronal mass ejection, which is similar to a solar flare. So some of yes. our data was correlated with that. This is not one of those days, one of those times, but this is again the importance of of our of our self reflection, introspection, and self skepticism. There are a couple events that I would love to. I mean, there was one. Remember, Jeremy, when you said like it's there, and then they're not, and we're so yes. excited, and then it turned out that that was probably tied to the solar activity, and we had to throw out. Yeah. Monday Basically, is one of our most interesting incidents because we had to be we yeah. have to be self-skeptical. Basically, what happened in that incident is I was reviewing the uh, the footage from the Osiris and the UFO depth systems, and I was looking at uh, objects, uh, white round objects that would appear in the video, and they would blink in here, and then they would blink off, and then they would appear over here, and uh, you know they were either there or they weren't at times. And uh, in, in post-analysis, it appears that the CCD sensor in the UFO DAP is susceptible to inputs of radiation. And the radiation bouncing off the, uh, the CCD sensor caused an optical image to appear that actually in physical reality wasn't really there. So uh, correction, at, correction, not bouncing, sure. passing through. You don't, passing through, right. It's very hard so, to make radiation bounce. Depending yeah, on so it, it passed through the CCD <laughs> yeah. sensor, yeah. Uh, creating the optical image. And at the time, yeah. uh, you know, we're all looking at this going, oh my God, we have, we have a series of UAP that are passing by us on and off. Uh, and it turned out to be uh, nothing more than than or potentially nothing more uh, than radiation passing well, through the system. I wouldn't call that nothing more. So this is that in itself might be. We still have to check the scientific literature. That might itself be an incredible scientific paper in itself. Is that the cosmic watch detected radiation at the same time CCD had these weird sparkles or speckles, and then it turned out there was increased solar activity. There was even a geomagnetic storm warning mm -hmm. issue that day so we may have actually had the first um scientific um of the first recording of us of, of solar activity simultaneously in a ordinary ccd camera and in an official high energy radiation detector that in itself has nothing to do with uap but is really right. cool but that's a great example of turning ufo into ifo is where yes. you identify it and then it's no longer UFO. Now it's identified. We know what it is. And it's and it's really weird. It's really weird this time. Who, who which skeptic or debunker would have thought of that on their own, by the way? Yeah. The UFO and, and Nobody would have come up with that. The sun, the solar yeah. flare. That's ridiculous. Like we worked hard to find that explanation. 
Yeah, and so the audience fully understands, we did correlate our radiological data with known solar flare emissions events and found that our spikes were not uh, associated or affiliated with the known solar emissions. Uh, one of those solar emissions, I believe it, it was even on the opposite side of the planet at the time. Uh, and the probability of us capturing any type of particle from that would have been uh, virtually impossible, I believe is, is correct. Well, some of our spikes did correlate, but the ones that we that are that are left in the movie, this was Caroline right. did, a, did a great job addressing this editing and removing the parts where that was initially exciting so no the, there were plenty of spikes that did correlate but those right. are we no longer consider them potential but the repeats. but the spikes associated with the anomaly itself did whole, not correlate whole, no 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 yeah. according to we checked we checked the solar data and that at that morning 4 a.m right in july 16th we do not have evidence of a correlation with solar activity we do right. not right exactly Excellent. So, so, then, so then what do you call this anomaly? And this was this was a real issue and and, yeah. and this you know became it's it's still an issue. And um and I think Matthew and I discussed this at one point and decided it was a radioactive atmospheric anomaly or something like this, right? And um that was the best we could come up with, you know, to be able to describe with for a few you're looking for a few words to label the anomaly, basically. Yeah. And, and I'll Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kevin. But you know that those those words that we were choosing aren't they're not they're not media friendly. I mean, yeah. nobody knows what a radioactive atmospheric. I mean, no, but no professional even knows what a radioactive atmospheric anomaly is um, because that <laughs> it's an anomaly. We don't know what it is. Um, and, so and to clarify. UAPX as a company is not stating that we found a wormhole. We're not stating that we found a portal. Uh, the, the, the theoretical math for those doesn't even, well, it's incomplete. Uh, so we can't even say definitively that portholes or portals or wormholes are actually real things. Um, I will personally take the heat uh, for the association of the words wormhole and portal uh, because for the folks that stick around to the very end of this uh, video, or for this live stream, I'll play uh, about a, a six or seven minute long video uh, that shows when I first discovered uh, this anomaly and when I sent it to production, uh, I used the terms portal and wormhole in my description. Uh, and unfortunately, those are media friendly and they tend to stick. But the company, UAPX, our scientists, we do not have a definitive statement saying that we found a porthole. We do not have a definitive statement saying that we found a wormhole. So, Jeremy, if I can add here, because I, yeah, I stand by everything I say in the movie and the scenes where I get excited and I say um, that, you know, I, I say in the movie, I would love it for that to be the case. For that yes. to be what it is, but me wanting it to be that, because that would be such an exciting discovery, doesn't make it so. Because that's just so many layers of speculative that we can't go there now. We did settle upon. I'm assuming this is where we're going next. Wormhole-like anomaly, and we've caught so much flack on that. But I think that that's because that's meant to be. Um, uh, we've caught so much flack on even that, but that's meant to be a compromise because you need to maintain the passion and the excitement for entertainment purposes. So it's absolutely true that Kevin and I 
for the record, yeah, we did agree to that. We did that phrase because that we're trying to balance the passion, passion and excitement with scientific rigor. And that's a hard balance. If we call it an atmospheric anomaly, yeah, that, that, that's boring. That's more accurate though. So we settled upon wormhole like like it. (laughs) Yeah. We settled upon wormhole like as a compromise, but you know what my high school English professor used to say, a good compromise leaves everyone unhappy because now we're attacked from all sides. Because wormhole-like, so then all the very, very skeptical scientists are like, that's utter nonsense. Of course, you're going to find a wormhole. And then all the believers are like, oh, my God, you guys found a, a, a wormhole. Why aren't you just calling it that? And so we're getting hate from all both sides because we're trying to find a reasonable compromise. So that wormhole-like phrasing was achieved after countless discussions of Kevin and myself and all of us with Caroline to find a compromise, balancing the passion of excitement of what could, something could be versus what is often considered more drier and more boring is being more conservative as a scientist and not yeah. making definitive stakes like saying. So it's meant as a compromise. And that's a known terminology, by the way. I know people were laughing at us into a wormhole like, ha ha, what wormhole is it like? Okay, that's existing terminology in science. For example, when the Higgs boson was discovered, you were we were calling it for a while still a Higgs-like boson. Right. Why? To cover our butts, even though we were like very, very sure we found the Higgs boson of the standard model. So that's where I was inspired and suggested to Kevin or the other way around. I don't recall. You know, it doesn't matter. We both suggested because of the Higgs-like boson. That's where I was thinking. So that's why we came up with that. So there's very, very good reason. People can disagree and yell at us all they want on Twitter and waste their time typing on Twitter instead of doing real work. But they, people can yell at us all they want. It was a kind of attempt at making a compromise. Yeah. So let's talk and for a minute you about know what we really found. Wait for the scientific paper. Yes. Yes. The, the, the science will be reflected in the paper. And, and that said, let's, let's take a moment to talk about what we know that it's not. We don't know what it is but we're pretty damn sure that it's not a gaggle of mylar balloons. Uh, we're, we're pretty sure that it's not a flock of seagulls or any type well, of bird. Due to the trajectory of all of those objects, I am absolutely certain they're not hypersonic seagulls. Uh, well, they're, they're certainly not radioactive hypersonic seagulls. <laughs> So yeah, we got we got to lighten up the mood here a little bit. Um, yeah. So basically, <laughs> so, go ahead. We so, lost so, Chris again due to his crappy internet. Yeah. So people understand a, a lot of the things, and and Kevin, if you're okay with it, may I talk momentarily about uh, some some high level on your shape analysis? Sure. sure. Okay. So one of the things that Dr. Knuth is doing uh, to help us identify, or at least identify what it is not is he is writing custom algorithms that use uh, machine learning to sample specific geometric shapes and do comparisons on what uh, the camera is seeing in the video. And to do that, he has taken, you know, basic geometric shapes and let the machine learning program say what the probability of this is, is X percent or, or, or lower. But we're also very keenly aware of what the U.S. Navy was operating uh, during our expedition in the Catalina Channel. 
I went through and I plotted the position and heading of every single naval vessel with the exception of submarines, which I can't get because it's classified. Uh, then we cross-referenced the, uh, the weapons loadouts, the electronic warfare capabilities, uh, FOIA'd the deck logs and the radar uh, from these vessels. And we know that there were torpedo vessels in the area. We know that there were targeting drone launching vessels in the area. Uh, we know exactly what type of targeting drones there were. And we acquired the shape files, the 3D image files of those. And Kevin is incorporating that into the machine learning and identifying or comparing what the machine learning algorithm sees as the targeting drones compared to what it sees as the shapes and we're getting probability scores to say that it has a very low probability of being a BQM-74 targeting drone, or it has a very high probability. Um, that's a very sophomoric attempt at, uh, at explanation, Kevin. I hope I did it justice. No, that was an excellent explanation. No, that's exactly right. So as far as what you're doing, how long does it take to run those analysis? It's taking a long time. Um, the... For example, I've just recently have almost completed the analysis of uh, basically treating them as spheres. Um, so, so you're just assuming that those white dots are all spheres and you're trying to, to describe that scene with a bunch of little spheres and then estimating the probabilities of this. Can and, I bring up the overlay of your uh, Yeah, your you can do that. The, we're basically taking advantage of what's called a, a technique called super-resolution imaging. Um, some of this was done by um, my colleagues, Peter Cheeseman and Vadim Smelyansky and Robin Morris um, or back in at NASA Ames in the Intelligent Systems Division when I was there in the early 2000s. Basically, uh, along the top row, you can see you've got some object here. I've got drawn a circle, and you're sampling it at very small intervals. You know, so you've got very low resolution image of this object, and so, so this is it's more of a linear image in the in A. If you look across in B, I've got some ellipsoid that you're just imaging with a several pixels. So this ellipsoid basically is covering what five or six pixels, four four to six pixels at a time. So you, so in your image, you have a very low resolution image of this, of one object. Now, if you have multiple images of the same object, multiple low resolution images of the same object and your alignment changes, then you can use that fact to basically, um, basically create a high resolution image of the object. And that's what the lower, the lower row shows here with these, these, um, few few scenes here and, and show that if you then line the object up you can treat this as a high resolution image now we only have we only have 12 frames of this of these objects in the video and to be honest I'm only using one of the frames the one that's more clear when the hole is actually quite dark um, but there are about 53 objects and the assumption is that if we, if so, one of the assumptions that I'm using is that if we assume that each of those objects are the same type of thing, then we basically have 53 low resolution images of the same type of object. And, 
And so the machine learning code that I've written is basically using these 53 load resolution images to try to come up with a slightly higher resolution image. What do I expect to achieve? I expect to be able to tell the difference between an airplane and a bird and a sphere and an ellipsoid and a triangle. Um, maybe be able to tell if it's a drone of some kind. Um, and so the idea is to um, use what's called, what we do in science all the time is you rule out possibilities. It's, so ruling out possibilities, how long do you think we are, or how far away do you think we are until we can definitively say that those 53 objects are not a BQM-74 targeting drone? Uh, I think by probably by the f end of summer, we'll be able to rule out most of the hypotheses and we'll probably have one that'll be one or more that'll be more favored than others. Now, I have another overlay here from you. Uh, I don't know if you want to discuss that or not. It was the uh, the code in the uh, the graphing. Oh, yeah, you can you can show that. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a look at that. So, so, so the algorithm that I'm using, you, know, you can see I'm running MATLAB here. So here's the the original images. So if you look at the upper right, you can see these two dark squares. The one is the original image with the with the small white dots, and this on the to the right of this is the current model. So this is only 140,000, 147,000 iterations in, and you can see that it's starting to be able to describe the the image, the objects in the image pretty well, at least some of the objects. How many objects? Well, if you look in the lower row of, of, of squares in the figure, if you look at number of UAPs, the it's basically modeling something like 21 of them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, I've this basically, I let this code run for uh, literally a month, about a little over 30 days, and I'm now up to almost a million iterations, and it's modeling something like 48 of them. And 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 um, and the way that this algorithm works, it's called nested sampling. The way that it works is it basically um, computes what's called the Bayesian evidence. So it's a it's a <clears throat> statistical quantity that allows you to determine how. Um, how much evidence for the model you have in the current data set. And so we're going to, that, that model that you just showed a picture of was a spherical model. So those were all being modeled as little spheres at different distances. So, they're different so you'll do this again with every other geometric shape. And I'll do that with every other model that we decide to test. Excellent. Excellent. And we did and get a question we, about, I'm sorry. And then we'll compare those and we'll compare the probabilities for each of the models and we'll see which ones are higher and which ones are lower. And so hopefully eventually we'll be left with a, a singular model that has a very high statistical likelihood of being. Yeah. And it could very well turn out that they were, that the military drone model turns out to be the most probable or sure. the seagull model is most probable. I don't think the seagull model will be most probable, but. Yeah. And we did get a question uh, in the chat about uh, how we record the camera data. Uh, luckily, we our, our equipment not only records uh, elevation and position of the camera, but it shows us the frame rate. It shows us the aperture. It shows us uh, what the, uh, you know, the uh, the f-stop or the aperture of the of the camera was. So we do have all of that information that is being taken into account during the statistical modeling. But speaking of questions, so Jeremy, didn't you prepare 
Yes. About, didn't you pull out like 25 or something? We I think we're an hour and a half in, but we haven't addressed all yeah, the we should, questions. Yeah, we've got about a, in advance. Yeah. We've got about a half hour left. So but there was about 25 questions I think you had called uh, from from I don't know what I remember is the Discord. Too many. Or what it was from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This came from our Discord, uh, which I want to give preferential treatment to because those folks are active and contributing to our Discord. So uh, unfortunately, I didn't capture the names of the people who asked the questions. If they're watching, they should know. Uh, the first question is, did any of the expedition team report anomalous psychological effects during or after the data collection period? Um, I was sleep deprived. Again? I, <laughs> did, did any of the expedition team report any anomalous psychological effects during or after the data collection period? Hmm. Aside um, from the usual psychological effects that we all <laughs> Yeah, I think we're all a little little touched. <laughs> yeah, I think you kind of have to be to be interested in this. But uh, if it, if you're referring to more like a hitchhiker type of situation or uh, being affected by uh, anomalous events, uh, I, I don't believe that I was at all. Um, but then again, I'm pretty hardcore skeptical about most things. So if something Except did happen, I, I could have been oblivious. Really yeah. Oh, I tell you what, that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> yeah, a little worried for, for a while there too. <laughs> All right. So uh, what is your confidence level in that your findings discovered non-human intelligence? Hello. I, th I think it's important to, 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 to note to people that we didn't find, you know, everyone wants like the smoking gun HD image of the aliens waving from the mothership. That's not what makes our, our data special. If it wasn't for the, the Doppler radar and the cosmic watch, it would be, oh, there goes yet another, you know, fuzzy, you know, UFO, you know, you know image. The important thing we have is the is the um, is the correlative data. Mm. But I, I think we can't we I'm not confident in that yet. I think it could still be an atmosphere, it could legitimately be an unknown atmospheric anomaly. You know, there's things like ball lightning and earthquake lights and stuff like that. We don't understand. I, I don't want to jump to non-human intelligence yet. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to entertain that, but I wouldn't say I have high confidence in that, in that yet, even right. with our best data, I'm not confident in saying that yet. So we, that brings we may up be able to show that we may, we may end up being able to show that some of the objects we saw were not, do not have prosaic explanations. We may be able to show at some point that some of these objects were moving at unreasonable speeds, hmm. but I don't think that we have any evidence right now that anything we saw is under intelligent control. Right. And um, certainly nothing interacted with us. And so I don't, so I think that the whole intelligence um, question is, is just not addressed here yet. So in your all's opinion, what sensors provided the most utility in viewing these anomalies? I know we had a wide breadth of things out there. What, what was the best piece of equipment? Because a lot of people want to know what they can get, what they can build, what they can acquire themselves to go out and replicate this. I think in my opinion, we'll all have different opinions, of course, here. I think the, the secret sauce was radiation detection because, again, like you said, Jeremy, you have radioactive seagulls. So it's the secret sauce. It's not perfect because we don't have directionality. We don't know the type of particle. But that's sort of the secret sauce because you've got things like the Cash Landrum case and the French report talking about 
radiological anomalies with UAPs. That's the secret sauce because you can't fake that. Okay, mm -hmm. and it, that's uh, to me that's stronger than a fuzz a, a fuzzy image, and so I. But I I do think that the question it's sort of a false dichotomy, because I think one of our greatest strengths, and I say this throughout the movie, it stayed in the movie, is the multi-sensor perspective is really one was really one of our our greatest strengths. Yeah. Uh, another question we have is, uh, did we use any CE five protocols, and if so, what was their efficacy? I want to yeah. go on record saying that I think C5 is BS and I'd love to be proven otherwise. So the way to prove to prove me otherwise is not like, wow, look, here we got it to work one time. That's right. not science. Do it a hundred times and then do it a hundred times wrong on purpose. Do the wrong meditation or rain dance or whatever and do it wrong a hundred times and show me those hundred times it doesn't work. So I would be convinced like that. I'm not saying don't study it. I think we should study it, but if it's nonsense, move on. I don't right. think we have we have definitively ruled it out, but in my opinion, I think it's it's pretty ridiculous. Well, I think it's I think we 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 put out the feelers to try to find somebody willing to do it, but nobody's willing to even do it. So, well, it's not quite accurate. I actually no. have a personal study going on here in Florida with a local group doing CE five that have been doing it for years. Uh, I've, I've attended three times and so far there's been no no contact or uh, no anomalous events and but uh, the next time I go I'm gonna stay quite a bit later because it seems like after I leave that's when everything happens so. negative energy you bring yeah. in the negative like <laughs> bring it bring in the Gary hate yeah <laughs> all right that's why it doesn't work so another question came in craft captured by uapx thermal cameras and the release military vehicles show low surface temperatures minus 60 to minus 80 celsius if i remember correctly could this be an indication that whatever propels these craft and what we witness is some sort of macroscopic quantum effect i think kevin and i spent a lot of time worrying about the coldness of to be clear right i don't think we found I think we found that even our anomalous objects still registered as, as hot. So we're not talking about objects uh, uh, we found, but in general, like the Navy video, stuff like that. Kevin and I went back and forth worrying about this for a long time. And, da and David Mason, we're always – there are some very crazy speculative ideas, things like um, registering is cold because it's actually really hot because maybe there's um, uh, plasma involved or some sort of space-time <clears throat> warping. But that's really speculative because then that does make the assumption that it is – advanced crap no, i'm not not ready as i said earlier to confidently go there that being said that was part of the justification for radiation detection whereas those crazy ideas is that you have something that's actually doing something really weird and it's actually got something extremely hot but then it messes things up and the flare reads it as cold or maybe it's somehow disconnected from the local air or space time or whatever, which makes it in non-thermal equilibrium or something <clears> like that. Those are all though very, very speculative, right? They're equal craziness levels as calling the whole wormhole, right? That we saw yeah. in the cloud. So they're very speculative, but we do have, none of that's quantum though, you notice, by the way, macroscopic right. quantum is one of those things where I don't think people realize that macroscopic quantum, like I I don't know if any, any civilization, even billions of years more advanced than us, could could make something in quantum superposition bigger than like a 
a micron or something. I think there are fundamental limitations that have nothing to do with technology that are just fundamental. Yeah. I could be wrong, and I, 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 I hope I am, but this whole macroscopic quantum is, is, is very, very iffy to me. You'll notice that all the crazy explanations I just gave are all towards like general relativity or magnetohydrodynamics and has nothing to do with quantum. Yeah. So here's a great question. If we had an unlimited budget and access to any hardware that we wanted, how would our sensor setup look? Uh, would we use airplanes with Raytheon FLIR systems, drones, submarines? And uh, how would our setup look if our budget was not unlimited, but high, say, a couple of million? Kevin, you want to take that? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I, yeah, if we had an unlimited budget, I think we would have fighter jets with with you know, loaded with sensors. I mean, basically put the Osiris on wings, right? Yeah. And then um, we would have, you know, these things, we observe these things, some some things dropping into the ocean ourselves. So I think we would have, I imagine, a huge sensor network or sensors all over the Catalina Channel, you know, watching the sky, listening to the water, doing all sorts of things um, that I would envision that that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be an infinite budget, you know, an infinite budget would include the, would be the airplanes with that. But, um, but I would love to have things out on the water, actually watching the sky as well as um, listening underwater while we're, while we're recording over the channel. I think that would be excellent. And, well, and I know, go ahead, I, I know what I would do with the company if we had an unlimited budget. I mean, we would have fleets of, of vehicles, hard, hard stations. We would have, uh, you know, uh, sensor packages literally around the world recording into data sets for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, you know, just like Kevin was talking, he's, he's thinking too small. We need to, we need a grid of satellites literally monitoring every inch of the earth 24 hours a day. That's what I would do with an unlimited budget, yeah. but with a, just a healthy budget, we're talking some real nice $75,000 FLIR cameras. We're talking, you know, uh, so, somewhere where we could set up at least permanently in one location so that we can set checks and balances. And, uh, you know, with five days, we were, it was amazing what we got. Yeah. I want to see. I'd, what I'd fix the oil leaks on the Osiris first. Well, we just probably buy another, another beast <laughs> of burden. Um, <laughs> in my defense, I have a hard time imagining unlimited. <laughs> I don't. It's a strange, <laughs> difficult concept. So this one is for yeah, uh, Aleph Zero or Aleph One. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go with uh, with Chris first on this one. Uh, do you think the results from UAPX will change the attitude of the science community towards studying the subject? And do you also think the results from UAPX will be compelling enough so that skeptics and I won't name names. Uh, will not be able to debunk it. Well, skeptics are always going to debunk it, no matter what you get. I, I, do, I do think that uh, they'll try. I do think that we're going to change the culture because the, the fact that we did it and successfully did it will lead to more grassroots efforts, people coming together and doing it with different, different sensors. So, yeah, I think we're definitely going to change the culture, open it up, and there's going to be more, more groups like us that are doing it basically from the grassroots perspective. I agree with with Christopher completely that um, about the point of of convincing. Now we have to be careful. There's a difference between skeptical and debunking. 
to be a scientist, you have to be skeptical. Debunking is where no matter what happens. And I agree with Christopher's first part of his answer. Absolutely. There are people out there, again, not naming names, where an alien could land in their backyard walk out and they'd be like, oh, you know, well, that that's lens flare. You know, it's that's lens flare off off of the lamppost, you know, over there. That's not an alien that just stepped out of my backyard. One of, one of my good friends yeah. has a saying that a sufficiently motivated skeptic can deny anything. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, uh, it's true. We've I mean, we've seen that, the, you know, sufficiently funded. I can just yeah, say conversely, a, a true believer can do the same example. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It goes both ways. That's you right. could take the most you could take a pixel and say that's an alien spacecraft. Unfortunately, it does go it does go both ways. But but it, it does. It, I think that the important thing to do is when confronted with new data, you change your mind about something. You're not intransigent. And I think there are a lot of people out there who are intransigent in both directions. Either it's 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 definitely alien spacecraft and anything to the contrary is just, oh, you know, they got to us. Right. You know, or whatever. Yeah. And, and then there's the opposite where, again, like I said, it doesn't matter the U.S. government puts out a report oh well you know they're lying to congress which is a felony by the way like it just boggles my mind that there's still people out there who still think that this is nonsense when you've got the uap task force report and it's like that has weird redacted things like redacted photos so like that how the hell does not does that not convince the most hard redacted shapes table redacted shape table yes why is a square classified ufos my hypothesis for why the shapes are classified is because the government doesn't want to apologize to people that like, oh, by the way, you have you're not you're not insane and imagining this for seventy years, and they don't want to do that. So I bet you the shapes are redacted because you know what they probably were classic shapes, flying saucer, right. tic tac. You know, so of course they redacted the shapes because they don't want to it, it, admit that the shapes people have seen cigar and triangle and all that that they're not crazy that there right. is an actual phenomenon. It's, and they don't it's not like that. Our government would let their soldiers and sailors think for 20 years that they're crazy. I mean, why would they do that? No, absolutely (laughs) not. All right. So based on our findings, do we have any suggestions for projects like SETI on what they should be concentrating for in looking at objects in outer space? Probably more mundane things. You know, they're, I mean, they, they do some pretty high end, monitoring of frequency bands that they consider would be in a range that you would consider civilized life but what happens if it's more mundane than that what if they're you know what if they're using you know terahertz frequencies because they work better in space or uh or in a vacuum you know or you know what if they're using some unknown technology we don't even know yet we should be doing like a like we've employed is, you know, that multi-spectral platform, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and maybe they shouldn't be looking out. <laughs> you know, maybe they should be looking more terrestrial. What? Yeah. I mean, I mean, earth is, earth is a pretty fantastic place. If you're anywhere near the earth or close to being able to visit the earth and you have any kind of curiosity, this is the place to be. And um, so if you're going to look for intelligent life, around the earth is a reasonable place to look. Um, That doesn't mean you shouldn't look elsewhere and looking out at other star systems is a great idea. And then they should continue doing that, but they shouldn't diss the idea of looking within, you know, within the, the, the regime of the earth. 
And, and Chris, as far as SETI is concerned, uh, and in the realms of the quantum world, is there anything that you would suggest to SETI that would be outside of the radio telescope, but more along the lines of detecting uh, potential patterns in, in quantum fluctuations? Uh, Chris, I believe you're frozen. Apologies to everyone, but uh, Chris is I'm coming sorry, to us. Breaking... Oh, yeah, Chris is coming to us from overseas, so his his internet connection is a little. I thought some quantum thing happened to him. I yeah, was a little worried like, for a moment. <laughs> so Chris is in two places at the same time right now, and it's uh, well, taxing his bandwidth. Like my Easter egg, right? Of the quantum, my quantum ball cap in, in the yeah. movie. That's a little Easter egg for people. I, well, I know how much Caroline loves quantum. You know mechanics, so that's the it was the quant the quantum ball cap continuity goof on purpose. It's Schrodinger's cap. <laughs> so a couple more questions here. Um, uh, yeah. Oh wait, they, sorry. they cut me off. Chris is back. Chris is back. There you go. Yeah, All right. A SETI. We're still on SETI. Chris, are you back? What was the what was the? I didn't even hear the question. It was uh, a, sorry. SETI. The qu yeah. the question is if you could advise SETI on yeah. something to to turn their their radio telescopes from. Uh, uh, from radio frequencies to, to searching for potential quantum fluctuations. What advice would you give them on that? In, in, in the idea them, of, of looking for told, intelligence. Uh, no, I told them, I did tell them, I told Seth Shostak, you cannot use uh, quantum entanglement for communications due to something called Eberhard's theorem because quantum wave function collapse is random. Uh, he, he seemed to think we would have instantaneous control of rovers on Mars or something to that effect. No, no more, no more, no more um, lag in, in delay in, communications protocols, but that's not the case. Unfortunately, it requires a classical communications channel to decipher any kind of entanglement based communications. Well, on, the, on the SETI front, though, before we move on, Jeremy, I wanted to, to chime in on this because it's very tempting to say, oh, they're they're wasting their time because they're already here. But I don't want to be negative. Instead, what I want to ask, though, I think it would be great if SETI stopped um, uh, attacking us and being negative about UFOs. This happens as they, they write like editorials about how stupid it is to look at UFOs. And I, I think that that doesn't help anyone. I think that, that we should be positive towards each other. So I want to take the higher road. I'm so tempted to be like, oh yeah, said he's wasting his time. But they're not wasting their time because UFOs might be wrong or might be atmospheric anomalies. We, we're pretty sure they're not optical. Or you could have both. Us. I mean, you could have yeah. you could have yeah. craft here, yeah. here, extraterrestrial craft here, and you could find us and, another and civilization somewhere else. There. Exactly. So I, and I, I think we have to look at examples of scientific history. You can't believe the number of people who laughed at LIGO as a waste of time and money because it took them 30 years or whatever to get the gravitational waves. I think we have to be patient with SETI, but they need to give us the same patience in return and stop crapping all over UAP as a waste of time and doing that constantly in like newspapers, editorials, because that they're doing themselves a disservice because what they're doing to us is what everyone did to them is said he was considered pseudoscience once and they had to fight really hard. And so now their strategy is, oh, well, now we'll take that hate out on everybody else. That's the wrong approach. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm saying this to them in a friendly way. Now I'm going to get so much hate mail after this, but I'm saying this, let's not hate each other, but respect each other, respect each other's differences and respect the fact maybe they're right and we'll never find anything with UFOs and they'll find aliens first, or maybe we're right. And maybe we're both right, like Kevin well, said. I think when it comes down we have to made, it, though, we have made discoveries yeah. independently of whether you find UFOs because you've got exactly. these cosmic radiation. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's more empirical evidence for UFOs than there is for 
we should respect yeah. each other, but but the other thing and, and I, the, and, that I always say is I think the and to be fair, there are people yeah. in the SETI community who are doing excellent work looking Correct. for near Earth objects. Sure. Yes, and sure. that's what Avi Loeb says we should be doing archaeology and it's not a zero sum game. And yeah. SETI is starting to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Last thing I want to say though on SETI is I do again this is a positive meant as a constructive criticism, but I do worry. That radio waves, right? That 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 that's so limited. When when how do we know there isn't some advanced civilization out there that uses, you know, I know it's a fictional example, so I'll get heat for this, but you know, subspace radio from Star Trek or the Ansible from science fiction. What if there is some something that like to to, to uh, radio waves to some advanced civilization is is a joke, is like smoke signals. I mean, I wish they were just open to that possibility. I understand yeah. that it's easier to start somewhere and to look for radio waves. I get that. But let's not pretend there aren't other possibilities of different wavelengths, not just of electromagnetism. Yeah. But what about non-ENM communication that well, we haven't even dreamed of yet? Their search made sense in 1960. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we've, we have advanced so much since then ourselves that to think that another civilization would be still using radio waves seems a little bit uh, short-sighted. Mm -hmm. Um, and there, well, there are people in SETI looking for laser blasts and things like this, and I sure. think that's very that's reasonable. There are people in SETI doing new things and interesting things, and I think they, you know, with the whole with the whole move to um, look for techno signatures, that that field has advanced significantly, and I think that's good. But but I think they also need to embrace the possibility of near Earth objects as well. Yeah, that's it. So I've got two final questions. Uh, the first one is. Is there anything that you wish you had known beforehand or done differently before you started this venture? And by venture, I'm going to expand his definition into searching for UAPs, not necessarily the mm. film or joining UAPX. But is there anything that you wish you had known beforehand or done differently before you started your search for UAPs? And this is for everybody. All right. Um, well, I would have started earlier. Um, I went you know, 17 and a half years, basically just thinking I was nuts. Um, I wish I had known what I know now 17 years ago and UAPX would have been a thing then. Uh, maybe a different name, maybe a different, different, different team, but I would have started a lot earlier in my search for exactly what it is that we tracked that, that for that week. Jason? I'm just, I'm here for the party. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what about you? Uh, I, I was really thankful that we have the uh, December 2017 New York Times article with Commander Favor and uh, Lieutenant Commander Dietrich. That was kind of the uh, tr the seat change, seat transition, to the, the phase change in recognizing these things by the public and acknowledging that they're in fact more than just fantasy. Kevin? I guess I, I, I never got to address the um, quote from Professor Kaku, and I, and I think it's, now is a good time to do that. I, I, I have great respect for uh, Professor Michio Kaku, and I instead turned the question back on him. What took you so long? <laughs> why, why, why didn't you do this? You were far better situated, perhaps, than we were to do this. Um, and and um, it's a completely fair question. And I and that that would be my question. I I, I, find, I found that I found his his statement a little irksome that way. 
um, because, because there are so many others in the scientific community who could have done this years ago. In the 50s, yeah, why? Why didn't it happen? What, where's the curiosity? I, I, I hear Avi say that. Where, why are people incurious? Why are scientists incurious? Well, how, did that, how did that ever happen? I, I find it incredibly puzzling and incredibly disappointing. Matthew? Um, it's late for me. I'm tired. What's the question again? What, what, <laughs> what would you wish you had known beforehand oh, or done differently? Um, oh, geez. I don't know. I would have, I mean, it would have been nice to, to get the, um, we started when he was five. <laughs> well, the ENM, right? yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, get the ENM, like get the like trifeel meter working, get some, um, cause the phenomenon is associated with electromagnetism, get some more like electrical and magnetic, uh, field readings, I think, mm -hmm. um, definitely would have had more, um, um, more careful about the power because I'm kicking myself. So what do I do to God? I wish we had FLIR video of the, that hole to help us. Um, and the, the, that just, I'm kicking myself that none of us notice that the power, um, when other cameras, it. we could have yeah. had many other cameras, other yeah. conventional yeah. cameras, uh, all sorts of things. I mean, those are some of the things I've, I've, plans for now but yeah. oh yeah faraday I, I, cage covered back power battery packups i mean i've i've got a, a lot of ideas for problems that we've encountered um well, we, you know so go ahead. i wish yep. i wish i had time but obviously i have other things i have my day job with dark matter but it would be nice to finish my uh the software that that, that i wrote to find stuff like in the FLIR to find objects. It's taken so many months to do that. And it'll be nice that in future expeditions to have something ready to go to have near real time processing. But this time was just so, so painful. It would have been nice to have time in advance to create the image processing software or find a commercial solution before going on the expedition. Yeah. Yep. Um, and this last question, this is not necessarily for what we've done with UAPX, but what each of you has done individually in this quest. Has your research so far convinced you beyond any doubt in your mind that something artificial and non-human exists in our skies? Uh, to be dead honest, uh, no. Yeah, I'm right there. I'm with him. Uh, I'm I still haven't seen something that's definitive. Chris? I'm oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, not through this research specifically, but from a cumulative proponents of evidence that I've gathered, you know, my entire life, I would definitely put it more to yes than no. Kevin? Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree a lot with Christopher. The, um, the evidence I've seen is not yet convincing for something like that. Um, but if I were to believe a lot of the evidence that has been collected by others or suggested by others, then I would have to say that there is something interesting here worth looking at. And I think that's about as far as I can go. And I'll chime in before I turn it over to you, Matthew. Um, Rudy Giuliani has a, has a great quote. He says, know what you believe. And while I believe that there is 
non-human artificial or non-human or artificial uh, activity in our skies. I don't know it. I believe it, but I don't know it. Matthew? Yeah, I think um, my position combines a lot of what uh, you you just said, and Kevin actually stole some words right out of my mouth as I was going to say, yeah, I'm more on the no end, further from Christopher and Kevin, though, more on the Gary Jason end in terms of there's not enough definitive evidence of artificial craft, not human intelligence. But I'm going to echo what Kevin said, which is that there is more than enough evidence for what um, a CU, SCU member Brian Miller calls a prima prima facie case, you know, good old Latin from, from law, there is more than enough evidence that says this is not, this is not primarily optical illusion and hoax, although there's plenty of those too, but rather there's something real that deserves funding. Like Avi's been saying, it deserves scientific study because we're stuck in a circle. We're stuck in a circle of UFOs are BS. Why? Because you're not allowed to study them. Why are you not allowed to say, them? oh, because they're BS. We already know. And so the circle goes round and round and round. It's time to break out of that circle. And we're breaking out of that circle. Avi Loeb was breaking out of that circle with the Galileo project. We need to break out of that circle and and finally and get funding and, and, and get the evidence. But yep. what really inspires me um, the most is it doesn't matter in the end that it's not – it, it, what if it's not aliens? A lot of people will be disappointed. What if we discover something new about the Earth's atmosphere? That's in, its, in itself exciting. But furthermore, what if just speculating about wormholes and faster than light travel and all that stuff leads us to then make it? Because remember, yeah. I'm a scientist because of Star Trek, which is fiction. So if all else fails and all the debunkers are right and it's <clears> all BS, what if as a side effect, humanity actually starts, you know, you know, growing out of its diapers and starts actually building this type of technology, even if there aren't aliens, but we think they are. And that inspires us to make some yeah. of these crazy ideas real, like, like wormhole technology, that would be worth it in and of it, of, of itself for me. So we are at the end of our broadcast here, but before people start signing off, I wanted to let them know that for those of you who have stuck around, uh, there will be approximately a 10 minute video played at the end of this, which is all about the anomaly. It's the first uh, statement that we made internally amongst ourselves and to the production of the film uh, regarding the anomaly. You can hear how uh, it's described. Uh, you can you can see everything that we saw uh, with that anomaly. Keep in mind that there are statements made during that video uh, pertaining to data that we said we didn't have, which uh, in subsequent processing of our of our recordings, we have found data. But this this recording is nearly a year old. Uh, so keep that in mind. Also, uh, Gary, I want to turn this over to you uh, briefly. I know that you said that you wanted to kind of take a break for a while and concentrate on growing the company. Um, is there any words that you want to tell uh, the folks in UFO Twitter and and what you're going to be doing and how long you're going to be gone for. All right. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll be honest with you. A lot of the, all the bickering and back and forth's got me worn pretty thin. Uh, I don't particularly care about the negativity. I, I literally ignore that. Anybody that's, you know, you know, I got one, 
one person praising me and one person telling me I'm a piece of shit. I don't really particularly care, but it does wear on you after a while. Um, I do want to caveat my prior answer, though. I do know with absolute certainty that there is an unknown technology on this planet. Even if this was a, a fake uh, processed encounter that somehow somebody spoofed us, it is such an advanced level of spoofing that even that in itself would be an, a level of technology that would be a thousand years ahead of what we're doing right now. So no matter what this event was that I witnessed in 2004, there's something amazing going on that I want to find out what's going on. Um, as for back to what we were just talking about, I'm going to take a break from social media for a while. I'm going to honor all current uh, you know, uh, promises with the interviews that we have scheduled. Uh, I'm going to take six months off and uh, I won't be respond responding to anything on social media. Uh, I won't be on social media. I'll be just focusing on growing our company. And uh, uh, I'm going to be also developing my own podcast for, for that time. Just kind of taking some reflection time to myself. Perfect. Thank you. And uh, as a last shout out, I do want to acknowledge the SCU. They have stepped up and they are providing people to help us analyze our data, uh, especially the, uh, the FLIR videos and such. We are very grateful to everything that they do and are doing for us. Uh, again, UAPX, uh, Drs. Uh, Knuth and Stagas, along with uh, Christopher Altman, will be presenting uh, preliminary and initial findings of our data and research at the uh, APEC conference, the SCU APEC conference in June. I believe it's the 3rd through the 5th of it's June. It's not APEC, Jeremy. It's just SCU. It's the SCU. Sorry, my yeah, mistake. It's, 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 I forgot the acronym for that conference. I think it's a AAPC, not APEC. That's the propulsion. Yeah, gotcha. I, uh, I linked it earlier in the chat. Yeah. yeah. So be sure to be sure to visit the SCU at explorescu.org. Uh, take a look at what they're doing. They are in partnership with us, uh, especially for the data analysis. And we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to present our preliminary findings to the SCU. Uh, with that, if none of the team has any further comments, uh, Mr. Knuth, you do. And I would just I would just add, stay tuned for our scientific papers. Uh, when, we, when are those we, expected? We plan to have we plan to have them. We plan to have some papers out by the end of the year. Perfect. Plural. Also, remind we have to remind people plural. It's yes. Not just one, yeah, because we found multiple anomalies, so it's plural. Multiple yep. anomalies, and each paper is designed to build on the previous one. So we're laying a foundational educational layer, and the next paper will step on that as a platform, and will continue to rise up until. Hopefully until we have captured the scientific and academic community to the point where they can no longer deny that this is a phenomenon worth studying. People have to be patient with us. That's yes. most important. Yeah. And the last thing I want to end on is, uh, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people ask about how they can help us out, donate, things like that. Um, we are currently looking for uh, to expand our scientific staff. Um, we are also always open to donations, which you can, you can go to our website and, uh, either donate that way, or you can, you know, I'm still accessible. Um, I still will be checking my email and all that, uh, or get a hold of one of the other guys. You can get a hold of me if you want to do something in a, in a different fashion. Um, but you, you know, everything we do, we're not, we're not making any money off of this movie. Um, you know, everything we've done is all out of pocket so far. Uh, 
we 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 want to thank everybody you know we want to thank carolyn Corey for the opportunity for us to get the data that we have we want to thank everybody involved and we in no way want this to feel like a, a bitch session because when it comes down to it we couldn't be here talking to you without this movie um so no matter whether you hate it love it it is what it is enjoy the film and enjoy the film and look forward to the science in the yeah. papers and if you want to see us, uh, you know, me, Kevin, and uh, Matthew will be at the SCU conference in person. Um, and then all of us, hopefully all of us, will be at the Phenomicon in, uh, out at, near Skinwalker. Uh, so we've been invited to come out there and present. present. So we're going to go ahead and do that also. Um, so we're going to be around. We're not going anywhere. So I'm just, I'm the only one that I think is probably going to go off the grid for six months. So. Uh, anybody needs to get a hold of me, you can always get a hold of one of these guys. So, all right. Good night. And uh, I love you all for your support and take it easy. Perfect. Gentlemen, I'm going to pull you out of the broadcast and I am going to end this with the anomaly video. So, gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining. Thank you. Thank uh, you for this having has us. been a wonderful conversation. And I'll see you at next Tuesday's meeting. Mm hmm. Right. At three. Okay, Caroline, I know that you are very excited to get some of our information or data or visuals that we got from our investigation. And we wanted to give you this, uh, but I want to make sure it is very clear that we are not suggesting that we know what this is. We are only saying that it is visually similar to descriptions of things that we have heard of. We have no correlative data. We have nothing that can back up the similarity of the visual description of this to any other event, either that we have captured or that other people have talked about. And I'm sorry that you cannot see my mouse, so I will do the best that I can in describing what it is that you're seeing. This video is coming from the UFO DAP camera that was on the roof of the house. In the upper right hand corner you can see the azimuth that the camera was pointing at. The elevation is zeroed out. The zoom is at one which is standard zoom at wide. It has the uh, uh, PTZ activity which was going to be to the right and down but you're not going to see any camera movement. If you see the green dot at the bottom of the screen, that is slightly right and almost all the way down from the center of the target in the middle of the red square. That indicates that the camera was going to move to the right and down. We do not have 
any visual recordings directly prior to or directly after this event. All we have are 12 frames of video. That is all that the system caught. We don't even know why yet that the system was triggered to capture this. But these 12 frames are extremely interesting to us, and we are currently going through all of the possible prosaic explanations to try to attempt to explain what this is that we're seeing. But I know that you are keen on getting information here, so we're going to give you this and let you see what it is that we're seeing. Now, I'm going to play this, and you're not going to be able to see much because I'm going to play this in real time. So in three, two, one, that was it. That was the entire 12, 12 frames, less than one second of video. But I need you to listen and understand what it is that we're seeing here. This image is from the roof of the house pointed at Catalina Island. It was nighttime and it was dense fog. The lights at the bottom of the screen towards left of center are the fishing boats that are close to the edge of Catalina Island, way off in a distance, approximately 20 to 23 miles from the position of the camera to those lights. Those are fishing boats. The lights to the right under where it says UAPX and OSIRIS-2, those are close-in fishing boats on the, uh, the surface of the water. Now, what you're going to see, and I'm going to have to describe this to you because you cannot see my mouse cursor to highlight anything, is that directly in the center of the screen where the targeting indicator is, look at that and then look slightly low and to the left, you'll see those two white orb looking things. Those are just something to ignore. Those are water spots on the dome. Don't get tangled up in those. Those are just water spots. They have nothing to do with this. The rest of this is what is anomalous. In the upper right of the screen, right now you should see something that looks maybe like a thumbprint smudge on the, uh, the camera dome. However, it is not. I'm going to back this up all the way to the beginning and you're gonna see that now that area is much darker than the surrounding image. What you are seeing is similar to what you would see if there was a hole in the clouds caused by multiple different things, but this is visually similar to what other people describe as a portal. Through this potential portal or this, this anomaly that is visually similar to a portal, you can see multiple points of light. Those points of light do not, and I say again, do not correspond to the star patterns that you would see if the clouds were not there. Now again, this is only 12 frames. This is less than one second of video, but I am going to have this go frame by frame to the very end. So this is frame 700. 
701, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Now here's where it gets interesting. This is frame 709. I'm going to back it up one frame. We're back to frame 708. Now concentrate when looking at that area that looks as if it could be visually similar to the description that other people have of portals. Right now, this is frame 708. I'll take it to frame 709. Do you see, I'm going to bounce it back and forth, 708, 709, 8, 9. Do you see that one pinpoint of light that is not there in frame 708 that is there in frame 709? 708, 709, 708, 709, back and forth. Now, 10, 11, and 12. Visually describing this only without any basis in scientific fact or data to back this up. This is visually similar to other descriptions that people have talked about with the openings of a portal. It is also visually similar to the ideas that other people have put forth that through portals you can see into other parts of the universe or galaxy, and that would be commensurate with the fact that those points of light do not correspond to any star pattern that we have here. It is also visually similar to what other people have described as fleets of UAP. And the fact that between frames 9 and 8, it appears as if an object appears inside that anomaly that is visually similar to a portal, one could surmise that maybe an object flies into the portal as the portal is closing. So from a strictly visual perspective, it would appear that our system, the UFO DAP system, caught 12 frames of the end of an anomalous event that is visually similar to that of a portal closing. We do not yet have any correlative data. We do not have anything that backs up this claim. This is going to take a very, very long time to research and dig into. I need everybody to understand that neither myself our scientists or UAPX, none of us are claiming that we captured a video of a portal closing. We are only stating that we have a very short 12 frame video of something that is visually similar to what others have described as portals opening and closing. But again, we have no data to prove or disprove that at this time in any way, shape, or form.